You're listening to Resonance 104.4, the art of radio. And the art of listening, come to think about it. Welcome to A Slug of Pop, a special edition of Freaky Trigger and the Lollards of Pop. I'm Tim Hopkins, and today we're going to be taking some time to talk in detail about just two records, plus any associated bits and bobs which spring to mind as a result. I'm joined by two distinguished music writers. <laughs> Mark Sinker, whose Hello. CV includes the New Musical Express, The Melody Maker and The Wire, among others. And Tom Ewing, who writes for Pitchfork and The Guardian. Hello. Both, of course, saved their finest work for freakytrigger.co.uk. Onward. Little Anthony, bless his heart, has his Imperials. Jerry had his pacemakers. And apparently one of the questions Echo and the Bunnymen hated being asked in the early 80s was, which one's Echo? Hurrah. Rumours went around that Echo was the name we of their drum machine. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the drum machine, apparently. Although uh, orchestral manoeuvres in the dark had a uh, tape recorder called Winston. But that's another matter. <laughs> um, the first song we're going to talk about today is Mark's selection, which is... The Cutter by the aforementioned Echo and the Bunnymen.
Right. Well, that's The Cutter by Good and the Bunnymen from, I think, 1983. Um, it's off their third notoriously difficult LP, Porcupine, which was um, handed back to them in disgust by their record company the first time of asking as being uh, unacceptably uncommercial. And so they had to scramble around to do something about this. And um, the thing that their manager, Bill Drummond, who is someone that uh, some listeners may have heard of, came up with, or one of the things he came up with was um, employing El Shankar to uh, record strings and to um, add this, pretty much drop it in, in advance of any of the song that they'd written as the beginning bit, um, to uh, turn the cutter from a song that the record company thought was unacceptably commercial to their first top ten hit. And um, it seems to me a, quite a strange thing to happen because the music that's dropped in is not like obviously more um, chart-bound or commercial. It's uh, sort of um, Carnatic violin playing <laughs> uh, with microtonal uh, Indian tuning from um, a musician who'd really been like on the odd outer edges of prog fusion and um, strange rock. Who worked with um, Frank Zappa, he'd worked with Archie Shep, who is on the difficult edge of jazz. He'd, he'd uh, played on Wolf City by Amondool too. Um, Poptastic. His his first name is sixteen letters long. Uh, Lakshmi. Uh, no, I can never get it right in one go. Uh, Lakshmi Narayanan is Tamil. Um, and his father was a um, an academic musician, and I think he was as well. He was studying in New York, and he met Ornette Coleman, and sort of infiltrated into the strange outer reaches of pop, of rock. Well, no, of music, not really rock or pop. Um, as a result of that and uh, so quite why Bill thought aha what I will do <laughs> to make this a sellout pop smash is employ this gentleman and uh, it's always interested me partly because I've always been very attracted to that kind of sound to just Indian music you know, in the sort of broadest sense, generally. I, my favourite song on Sgt Pepper when I was a wee one was Within You, Without You, which is everyone else's least favourite. And uh, so, yeah, I was just very taken by this. And there was something a bit unacceptable about the whole kind of Indian-Asian dimension of music in punk, anyway. It was one of the things which had really gone out of fashion because I think it was associated with hippies and George Harrison and a, a kind of um, attitude to uh, music which was not three minutes long and nice uh, chunky guitar chords and something. I don't know. I mean, it'd be interesting to talk about what other people think about that. But definitely that the Asian dimension to music was unfashionable at that point and uh, I think I find it, I ju it just interests me that somehow it was the thing that um, turned them round 
I mean, it's not as if they did interesting stuff after that. I thought they were more interesting before it. I really like this. And then I've never really cared about Echo and the Bunnymen in anything they did <laughs> after Porcupine. Um, probably because they didn't work with Al, Sh- Al Schenker anymore. Because they, I don't think they were terribly happy with the, the whole sort of setup. And the funny thing is, the song is a little bit about this kind of panic that they have about. Um, it, it's not. Like anything that Mac has written, it's not a clear song as to exactly what it's about, but it's a very, it's very obvi- obviously an anxious song, and I've always sort of vaguely interpreted the cutter as being some kind of menacing guillotine for people proposing themselves as the new aristocracy in an era where there should be no new aristocrats or leaders or what we should all be, you know, punk proletarian equals and that um, that they were frightened were they able to deliver the thing they w- that was being asked of them which was to be rock stars in an area where stars were not necessarily approved of and that and the other side of the other uh, meaning for cutting the sort of um, face on the cutting room floor kind of aspect of it that you can now uh approach music as something that you can chop up and paste back together and and what would happen if somehow when you chop it and paste it back together poor old mac is left on the cutting room floor and there's this fantastic indian dude doing this brilliant thing which makes them pop stars so all of that is very much condensed in this song and is what makes it interesting for me um so uh yeah i mean i i, I guess I'd kind of like to throw it open a bit at this point to talk to both of you about what your response to the Asian-Indian dimension is. For me, I mean, I don't remember it at the time, actually. I was listening to chart music at the time, but I didn't have a strong memory of this particular song, and I got into Echo and the Bunnymen kind of <clears throat> when I was exploring into the past of, of, of indie and sort of NME music when I was about 16, probably. So probably I, I bought all the Echo and the Bunnyman albums on tape, pretty cheap. And this, I probably thought it was a synth, because I just thought that everything from the early 80s was a synth. So it didn't immediately strike me as a, a an, an, an Indian-Asian thing. And it sounds kind of vaguely, this is probably going to sound quite bad, but like it, 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 there's a kind of like, it sounds like a sort of ethnic drop-in in the same way that you get on Susie and the Banshees, who had gone from this journey from being quite severe post bunkers and and they'd they'd kind of you know the way they'd kind of opened out the sort of palette of their music was by kind of dropping in a lot of textural stuff um, on, well, on things I, like kiss in the dream house so it's quite yeah. gothy yeah um kiss in the dream house i think is the same year yeah if i'm right i, I think, think it's, it's 83 think it's and it before, is yeah. 80 yeah it's yeah. 83 84 anyway and that is i think the year when the anxiety that the rigor of post-punk is actually shutting you away from things you might want to do it's shutting you away from the rest of the world and that it's shutting you away from opening out but that this was the thing that that punkers or people who'd been through that were incredibly worried about did they have permission to like x y and z dub dub was okay but indie music african music were these okay was this acceptable you know who was telling us Another thing that happened, as I recall, around that time was the very first 
uh, WOMAD, World of Music, Arts and Dance Festival. Yeah, that's 1982, the first one. Uh, um, which happened in Bath, I think, um, Bath and Wells. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was it was kind of one of the first times, certainly as a, as a, as a kid growing up and being interested in that sort of music, it was one of the first times where I saw groups, I mean, I, I, as I recall, the beat headlined, and, you know, bands like the beat who I was interested in up alongside African music and Indian music and, and all of a sudden it felt like there was all this stuff that not only was I allowed to like, actually it began to feel like I you know, could get some cool points and a bit of a power move by by liking that stuff. But it, it strikes me that it strikes me that um you know, e- even then I was I was very clear that I didn't want anything to do with any of this hippie stuff. Hmm. And it strikes me that one of the things that the bunny men do or El Shankar does in that bunny men space is is provide those textures without the spiritual context that were that the that George Harrison's of this world weren't very heavy on. Yeah. You know, the the there was a it came as a package with sort of spiritual enlightenment, it seemed to me, looking sort of retrospectively as you know, I was aware of this music as it came out, but I didn't know about you know what I knew about the twenty years ago. I learned from people talking about it contemporaneously, and the sort of messy fug of the spiritual side of that stuff seems to be stripped away in the in the new acceptable way of liking these texts. I think what you get is these very sort of bite-sized, yes, moments, and they're sort of textural, so they become backdrop to some guy that you can comfortably feel is not spiritual, which is yeah, some studenty type in a um, in a great coat. And yeah. <laughs> or you know equivalent of that. Um, I mean, maybe we should um, play one of the um, clips, which is I think the Shakti clip, which is from just like moments before punk. Really, I'll I'll say something more about it afterwards when it's played. It's very short, anyway. It's less than two minutes long. That's assuming I can find it on this. Uh, uh, not that. Not that one. This one. Yes. <laughs> Come on, baby, dance with me by Shakti with John McLaughlin. 
Which is a bit of a untypical uh, length in the sense that it's less than two minutes and title in the sense that it's more like a um, an American pop title. And, and really a lot of um, what Shakti did was uh, much more pressing on the, the spiritual button that you're talking about because McLaughlin, although he, he was from Yorkshire and he'd played with Brian Auger and... George Fame, and then been picked up by Miles Davis as being like a ridiculously super fast British electric guitarist who who really was being employed because he was f- played faster than anyone else as far as anyone can decide. <laughs> um, he'd hooked up with some uh, easily packaged guru, who's luckily dead, so I can say that's about him, called Sri Chinmoy. And, uh, and yeah, a lot of it seemed to be like... Um, enlightenment on the cheap that you bought a record by this person and and therefore you must be uh, intellectually and morally advanced. The the thing that struck me when you were talking about spiritual, not spiritualism, um, (laughs) (coughs) (laughs) spirituality is... um, is that that kind of came back in a big way with with suckers the band echo and the bunny men were most compared to were you too and of course bono bon- the big thing that bono could the big ghost bono dredged up and reintroduced to to, to pop almost was spirituality and his big breakthrough is the year after the cutter with the unforgettable fire and and such like which you know the unforgettable fire could be a kind of pseudo guru mystic-y title and he's using it in a, it's it's a, quite a disconnected record in itself um and so kind of is there you know is is it is it like the cutter isn't a particularly spiritual record but is it kind of well look, i think the, that door? i think the cutter is is basically about a sort of an absence and a doubt and an anxiety is there something here that we can like is if we walk out on the lake will it hold our weight we don't believe so and i don't particularly feel that you two have ever doubted that the weight the, that their weight will be held by the lake their spirituality is in some rather vague sense christian and the spiritual that they turn to is largely American. Whereas what I find really fascinating about the thing that happened in the counterculture from the 60s was that just because of George Harrison's kind of private, rather odd interests, he had turned it to um, a really curious set of gurus from the East and because the Beatles were so massive, was able to convert this into something of you know genuine cultural mass even Mm -hmm. though i don't know that it was very deep uh you know because it's it seems to have sort of waxed and waned within pop culture pretty um a lot over the, the decades since but he opened a door on a pretty massive scale to music which is not you know something which is necessarily easy to to grasp or to listen to. I mean, I really like this kind of stuff, but I I agree that I'm post-punky generation too, and I'm a bit suspicious of people who are saying, you know, universal love is the key, because I don't. I think like, well, I don't really. Okay, what's step two, please? Right. And um, and and there's something very passive-aggressive about a lot of the religiosity. I, I, I even actually even more so, I think, than I find with elements of Christianity, although, again, I'm not a believer, but maybe I just have more skills at dealing with that and fending it off. I'm, I, uh, as, as we talk about it, I seem to recall there being a, um, 
a brief fashion for the gospel amongst um, sort of enemy reading classes in the in the early 80s as well the, the inspirational church of the something or other church of god um <laughs> made some records on stiff records and got on the uh, got on the tube and things I and mean, you know it was they were very much touted for the attention of the of the hip young people but um, here's a question that i'm interested in um i i have often um heard people say that you know the the, the, the massive success that you two enjoyed um came they they were one of the few bands that had the potential to to break out and become as massive as you two became you know including Joy Division slash New Order, including Echo and the Bunnymen. Um, what was stopping the Bunnymen becoming the global pop phenomenon, rock phenomenon that you two became? Well, this this record was said to be very difficult for them, and I think that they actually had a kind of commitment to some, um, you know, aesthetic or um, discursive. Uh, dimension which was making it difficult to break out and that's what you know they were faced with the record company saying I'm sorry you know this is a bogshed record or whatever <laughs> it was they said I mean bogshed didn't exist for a bit but I, that's the impression I get is that mm. they handed something they had a really difficult time recording it and didn't like each other during the recording of it they handed it in and the record company said sorry we have no idea what to do with this bearing so, in mind this is after Heaven Up Here, which was a you know a pretty rigorously uncommercial record in and of itself. I guess so. Yes. I mean, I mean I've always thought of it as a much more blandly dull record than Porcupine. But you not know, not many, not many songs, not many no, kind of humble no, tunes no. on Heaven Up Here. It, I think it does begin. It it starts to develop this sort of this kind of endless guitar thing, which you two kind of really ran away with. And I, I mean, there's several things that that happened to. Echo and the Bunny. And one is that they actually lose a band member, isn't it? That one of them died, right? Um, in within the next two or three years, and so, uh, that is probably not helpful sure. in this, or is is a complication. Um, as I say, I'm not really. I wasn't really following them particularly after this. I, I sort of feel that with this record and with this LP, they captured the feeling of a kind of impasse and difficulty, which is that the post-punk project had got to this really kind of clotted, dense stage where it didn't know what to do next. And that Bill Drummond, interestingly enough, had thought, well, just like break out in this direction. And as you say, Susie and the Banshees doing a similar kind of thing, which is like, OK, let's um, edit ourselves into the random sounds of the world. The Clash did the same, really, with Sandinista, which is also 1983, which is mm -hmm. like bringing in the sounds of the rest of the world and seeing how we respond to them. I mean, I'm even less of a Clash fan than I am of a U2 fan, but it's, it does intrigue me a lot that this is... It's like bringing the rest of the sound back so that you'd spent six years or something being really rigorous about the thing we're doing and then, OK, we have to go out into the world again and see what everyone else is doing and see if we can interact with everyone else. Mm -hmm with varying degrees of success. Any thoughts on that, Tom? I, I wonder to what extent it was it was that Bill Drummond being a, 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 a canny fellow kind of thought, well, look, the Echo and the Bunnymen aren't, aren't particularly strong songwriters. They don't actually have an enormous kind of back catalogue of 
toe-tapping yeah, chains. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's sort of, well, look, if, if, if what they're doing with, with Heaven Up Here and such like is they're moving into these kind of textural places, they're doing these things, then let's kind of try to, to put textures together. Because the other thing that's happening at this point is, um, is McLaren, who's probably, is, is, you know, in, in the Drummond mode, is kind of trying to, to bring together the kind of country... Mm-hmm. Hip hop and all these kind of you know he's he's very aggressively moving into this sort of let's rediscover the world and and reframe it as a as a punk or post punk project. While we're while we're talking about the textures of this and um, before we move on, one more question, which is as I was listening to this earlier, it struck me that there's almost no guitar on this record. If you'd asked me to tell you what sort of a band Echo and the Bunnymen are, I'd have told you that first and foremost they're a guitar band. Listening to the cutter, um, the, the 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 lead guitar, if 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 you can call it such a thing, is just is coming in and providing some stabs of colour now and again. There's there's there, there's no riff, there's no guitar riff in the whole record. Um, the the Indian strings are doing something like you would expect a guitar riff to do in the traditional rock record. Towards the bridge at the end, there's some way way down in the mix. There's some just very textural. You know, um, fast acoustic guitar playing, just to add a little bit of noise near the bottom. But it's almost no guitar on this record, which struck me as an interesting thing. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. That, I mean, this sounds like a funny thing to say, but I think that a lot of post-punk, even though there's obviously lots of guitar in it, is a lot of it is about trying to leave guitar behind. That it had been the very central. It's obviously the central instrument instrument of rock in lots of ways, and the way that electric guitar works, kind of long form in a linear sense and in a vertical sense, is very important to the sound. But but a, a lot of post punk was either finding other instruments, most obviously the synthesizer, or finding ways of reducing the sound that you're allowed to make. So, for example, the solo is gone. is gone. gone. Yeah. So the linear sense that a guitarist can dominate a track for two minutes doing something that is where you're only listening to him not allowed anymore and um i don't know if we have time to play it but i mean the the um uh the last we can play a little bit of it maybe the 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 point of the turning point for me is keith levine with with public image who is someone who was you know famously hostile to the sound of guitar traditional rock guitar. traditional rock guitar let's yes. give it a quick listen yes So I'm going to uh, leave uh, Swan Lake by Public Image Limited there. But I see what you mean. And that, that Keith Levine guitar sound, um, The Edge certainly listened to that quite carefully, yes. I would say. Yeah. And uh, No, absolutely. And I think... I mean, would you call, would you call that a, 
a guitar band. Obviously, there's guitar all over it, but somehow it seems to me not the, the right way. It's a disco band. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you see, I, in my head, the Bunnymen were one of the bands who began a kind of long march back to traditional rock values. And that's why I was interested in this, because actually I was expecting it, having not listened to the cutter for goodness knows how long, yeah. I was expecting it to be much more stodgily guitar-y. In my mind, it was much more much more of a return to Dorsey rock than, although the Doors, of course, not, you know, also actually kind yeah. of organ-driven rather than yeah. guitar-heavy. But um, it, was, it was less trad rock than I remembered it. I think, I, you know, I mean, that probably boils down what exactly interests me about it, which is that I think that there is this tremendous anxiety in this band, and this is actually what, for a little while, they were very good at capturing, is... I don't know what's making that yeah. funny noise. The computers make a funny noise. Um, was uh, what, um, what should we be doing with the guitar? You know, and, and should we be moving towards that or should we be moving away from it? Um, and uh, I think this song almost perfectly encapsulates their sense of uh, not knowing what to do. And, and so that's why I like it, because they've kind of just like, captured that idea, captured that feeling and just gone with it. The song almost like peters out into, like, what do we do next at the end anyway? It's too long and they don't know what to do next. Well, with that vote of confidence, let's give it another quick listen. Listening to Resonance 104.4 FM, The Art of Listening. This is a Slug of Pop special edition in the series Freaky Trigger and the Lollards of Pop. And I'm talking to Mark Sinker and Tom Ewing. Katrina had her waves. Elvis Costello had, I understand, his attractions. One question which Marina and the Diamonds are often asked is Who are the Diamonds? Marina is apparently a solo act, and the name derives from her surname, Diamandis. Uh, sometimes she claims that the Diamonds are her fans, which is a lovely thing to say. Um, either way, Tom's selection this afternoon is Hollywood by Marina and the Diamonds. Here it is. Hollywood wife because 
because uh, I looked on my uh, well for lots of reasons but one reason is that I looked on my Lost FM playlist which assiduously tots up what I've been listening to this year and actually it turned out that what I've been listening to this year is that more than (laughs) anything else Um, which I was slightly embarrassed by because I don't think of myself as particularly I think this is a good record but I'm not totally sure I'm not completely on board with it and and, and it it would class I guess as a guilty pleasure and certainly the first thing I noticed about it uh, was that the lyrics are kind of astonishingly in your face kind of annoyingly dumb almost the 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 the, <laughs> the, the scenario of the song um is that which is actually clear in that which is the album version the single version misses out the important context that this is an air hostess um but mariner is on an airplane and she sees an air hostess who is a a, a, a polish immigrant to the u.s reading a glossy magazine and leaps up and says you know why are you letting the man dictate your thoughts and turning you into a, an, an american mind zombie um and such like and the idea of this which would surely you know the sequel which is where she uh, she ends up in kind of jfk right. <laughs> getting uh, interrogated for several hours right. Um, as to what substances she's been taking or wakes up in hospital yeah or wakes up in hospital anyway maybe that's on the 12 inch but um but no it's sort of the the what attracted me to it and what a, a, attracts me to it apart from the fact that i think the chorus is good it's got a very kind of strong hook and she's a, a, a 
on our whole album, um, which is wearying but kind of rewarding listening because it's all like that. Um, the, <laughs> the hooks are all strong and the kind of personality is strong. Um, and it is very like being kind of with a, you know, at university with somebody with extremely strong opinions with not necessarily an awful lot kind of, 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 of backing them up, but kind of engaging nonetheless. Um, and it's also all about her. There's the there's the bit in the in the lyric where uh, she gets mistaken for Catherine Zeta Jones, um, mm -hmm. which is a little bit unflattering <laughs> for her actually, since she's half her age. But um, but and she says, no, no, I'm Marina. Um, and I think that's the kind of ambiguity in the song. That on the one hand, you know, obviously she is uh, a young woman becoming a pop star and trying to become famous and and what have you. And then you know, but also doesn't fame mean Hollywood and and the, the her idea of the American dream, which is you know shallow and idiotic and and all this kind of thing. And she's been packaged with uh, with Lily Allen, um, and and Florence and the Machine. They're, they're all kind of fairly different artists, but they're all young and female and British. Um, and the female element is the kind of um, the thing that the press, I think, have kind of latched onto. Um, but um, <laughs> unusually, well, yeah. yeah no. Well, I never. But, um, but there is this kind of kooky, quirky girls, which is astonishingly annoying. It must be kind of hugely annoying for them um, to be sort of all bracketed together in this kind of uh, thing. Because what what strikes me partly is that she's in this this modern tradition of having well modern. Vogue for having quite a kind of trying to have quite a kind of intimate personal relationship with the fans. Um, so the whole thing about the diamonds being her fans, just like Gaga has her little monsters, Lady Gaga, uh, for your typical <laughs> resonance listener, <laughs> as opposed to Lord Gaga, <laughs> Pop popular beat uh, foxtress Lady Gaga. Um, and she calls her fans the little monsters, um, and it's the same kind of thing where you 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 know you you relate to your fans very strongly via Twitter. It's this very much kind of blogging style, Tumblr style form of songwriting where it's all sort of you know a kind of pounded out entry, and it's much more important to be real and you know self expression rather than this kind of thing. And um, which is itself quite an American idea. It's like if you if you see on uh, on Big Brother, they've um, when the contestants from Big Brother, it's all about who's real and who's plastic. Mm -hmm. and such like and plastic is both standing in for hollywood but then the dichotomy of kind of real and plastic is is also a, a, a something which has, i think kind of been imported from america a little bit um this sort of idea that the the the, the sort of self-actualization um through being yourself and being an individual and speaking your mind um and that is kind of the big reason why i picked the song because i think that one of the interesting things about this crop of songwriters is their britishness uh which isn't really kind of because basically the press are so keen on them being women, um, the, the the sort of element of Britishness in them, which comes out very strongly in a song about perceptions of America called Hollywood, um, is an interesting thing about it. And I wondered how people felt it it, it comes across or relates to kind of Britpop of old, because this is a something that British acts often do, and it's kind of a, a, an, an interesting and powerful and dangerous box for them to be opening. Well. I mean, I have to say, the first thing that struck me when I was listening this time is not so much Britpop of old, although I'm, I guess I'm probably not the world's biggest expert on Britpop of old anyway, but it reminded me of Kim Wilde of Even Older <laughs> and that, that this was like a, a Ricky Wilde song about America, which he seems to have read about once <laughs> a long time ago and has lots of kind of curiously... Oh, easily seen through opinions where the um, 
the emotional hook is quite attractive, even though there's a bit of you, the pedantic bit of you saying, hang on, New York to East California, <laughs> what are you talking about? And and this, it, not only does it sound a little bit like that, but it has the same sort of um, received feel that that America is like quite a small object that you're able to kind of handle and hand around and mock. Yeah, yeah. And, as opposed to as something that that has actually been engaged with on on any kind of um, grown-up level. That was the first thing that, that struck me. But actually, that's not an unusual thing to encounter uh, in Britain. No, when I'm, people are talking about America, they quite often actually are talking about a very um, poorly thought through version of it it's a very it is quite an english thing to do and i think it is also that threads through a lot of british pop culture which obviously has in a sense quite an intimate relationship to america but it's a very um shallow and sometimes excitingly shallow i'm pro kim wilde and sometimes very drearily shallow i'm notoriously anti you too um version of what's good about America it, it strikes me that um, you know British kids fascination with America is, is, is something that lies um, somewhere near the very heart of all anglophone rock and pop music yeah yeah and, um, and you know, the, the story of rock can be told as a, a sort of transatlantic conversation and that's, that's kind of why it's, it's exciting as well as um, mm -hmm. annoying when it, when it comes up in this kind of very flagrant sort of way and I think I mean I think that the, the Kim Wilde thing is actually quite true and and, um, and it's that sort of sense of, uh, of of yeah of that kind of received but still exciting discovery it's sort of you know there's, there's something ersatz about it there's something kind of fake about these particular opinions which which still but they're still kind of vaguely thrilling like seeing a a, a, a rip off t-shirt that's still Attractive and appealing, or whatever. Well, it strikes me that um, it strikes me that Marina and Kim, you know, as Kim before her, they're not really identifying with a particular kind of Americanness, or even necessarily being American. Um, but there's that they seem to be identifying with a kind of a kind of American glamour, which, they, as you say, they probably haven't really thought through very well. But there, there you know, there is a sense that Americans. Americans do glitz and do pop and do flash rather better than British people do, and and that that's maybe the thing that that Kim and Marina are, are kind of latching onto. Whereas if you look at I don't know the Who, who were totally obsessed with you know Americanness and a particular bit of America, but, but the particular bit of America that they obsessed over was was you know blues and R and B, which is a very different relationship to mainstream, you know, East Coast, West Coast, you know, white, rich Americanness, which is the bit that you know Marina's criticising a bit more. So, fulsomely. so that there isn't really. I mean, you were saying earlier that that she's bundled in with Lily Allen, which seems to me really strange. It, you know, I mean, they, I think probably she's more bundled in with Florence and the Machine because they have similar naming strategies. <laughs> uh, I, um, I find yes, but, but she's in that kind of post Lillian. That's the kind of quirky girl thing. 
Whereas um, it seemed to me fairly straightforward that Lily Allen's topics are, you know, herself and the world immediately around her, which she actually talks about in quite a comfortable way. Yeah, let's let's play yeah. a little bit of it. He treats me with respect He says he loves me all the time He calls me 15 times a day He likes to make sure that I'm fine You know I've never met a man Who's made me feel quite so secure He's not like all them other boys They're all so dumb and immature That's just one thing Fair by Lily Allen, featuring a, uh, a, a based around a sample from the theme tune to the Porter Wagoner show. Wikipedia told me, <laughs> which I think, I mean, there's obviously a very strongly quotes American tinge to that because it is country and western in a kind of showbiz country and western way as a tinge. Well, it's it's a version of country and western from a time long past. Yes, yeah, but but the. What's interesting about that is it's not something... She's not turned towards that in what she's talking about or what she's concerned with, really, at all. It's using it as a, a kind of strong and uh, well-used coloration for the thing she's actually talking about, which is, you know, the dynamics of relationships and uh, the ethics of how you look at them. And... It seems to me it's a really different topic from Marina's topic, mm. which is a kind of grand cultural statement about an anecdote turned into a um, some kind of uh, bad newspaper column about how different cultures work, um, which is, you know, there's lots of things which are quite engaging about it, but it's not... Um, you don't feel she knows what she's talking about, whereas you do know, feel that Lily knows what she's talking about because she's talking about herself and mm -hmm. things that she's thought and things that she's she's um, contrasting in. Because it, it has a funny structure as well, because it, it seems to be there's, the verse is, is from one perspective and the chorus is from absolutely the opposite perspective as if it's the other person mm -hmm. in the relationship or someone taking totally the opposite line on her... Uh, which is a, a, a very, very different kettle of fish. But you can see why somebody might choose a country-sounding chassis for, oh, yeah, a, yeah. for a song that, that's, yeah. that's taking that angle. <clears throat> I mean, I think, I suspect that is probably, uh, well, I don't know, but my, my thought about it is, is that, um, which Cat, who was going to be on this show, but is ill, unfortunately, so anyone yes, tuning get well in soon, Kat. Yeah. looking for Cat, uh, that's why <laughs> <coughs> she's not. Um, but she... Um, I think there is a kind of like, here's a song about failing relationships and such like, and 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 this is where I'll use the country sample, which yeah. is also allowing me to do a deliver things in a particular way, and is making the song confrontationally jaunty. 
um, which is actually like it was interesting that when this song came up um, the discussion online around this song a lot of people found it really kind of quite uncomfortable and distressing and offensive and, and, and particularly one has to say male reviewers found it quite you know it's a song about impotence that is kind of delivered both as a joke and also not a joke and and such like so there's a kind of like I think it's kind of blending a, a in some ways the link um, well I mean the link to, to, to between these tracks is that I just was kind of pulling anything together that um, I thought was vaguely even slightly <laughs> could bump into one another but um but I think they're both kind of taking a, a personal anecdote and they are universalising it um, in ways that, you know, are they offensive, are they not offensive? Is it kind of, you know, people... Certainly the, the, there would be people who would listen to that uh, record, the, the Not Fair, and think, well, you're the one who's not being fair. No, wait, help. Ah, why are you being frivolous? Why are you doing this and such like? And it's similar, the kind of... Uh, and maybe you know there are there are people who listen to the uh, but I, and I think kind of well that's that's actually all quite clever and Lily's very good at what she's doing but then there are probably people who listen to the Marina record and think aha that's quite smart and that's quite such like whereas I, I'm in the segment that time where it's going this is a really engaging record but it's also sort of not smart it, yeah it's not <laughs> smart and it's uh, one more question before we uh, sadly draw to a close which is. Um, Famously, legendarily, one of the um, one of the ideas around Britpop was that it stood in uh, at best an uneasy relationship with the grunge music that was coming from America um, in the years immediately preceding it. To what extent do you think that Marina and Florence and their kind, and and maybe some of the um, maybe some of the folky types who also have sprung from the MySpace world, are standing in um, some sort of opposition to hip-hop, which is you know, obviously one of the biggest noises coming out of America for the past few years? Um, I don't think it's hip-hop precisely. I think it's the, the thing that, these, that this, this kind of generation of female songwriters seems to take aim at more is R&B. Um, hip-hop, they tend not to kind of criticise or mention, whereas uh, there's definitely been kind of R&B and R&B influence pop and LaRue, um, famously who's who's also thrown in again, despite having a completely different sound, set of concerns, far more kind of 80s and abstract um, has has talked about this and has kind of openly criticised R&B and, and, and again, kind of quite a sort of reductive and um, ill-informed ill-informed, yeah, <laughs> way um, so I think that if they're if they're refusing anything, it's that. But that's I think I mean I think that's a kind of uh, that's an interesting point, in that, and it kind of ties back to the echo thing. What you know, a question maybe you always have to ask yourself as a music critic is, what music is this avoiding? What music is this not trying to be? Mm-hmm. Um, if if you're saying something is avoiding grunge, then one of the things it's avoiding is guitars. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this may be. I can think of people who would think this is a very controversial statement, but I think there's much more of a continuity between the ways guitars were used in rock in the 70s and in America in the 80s, but not in Britain in the 80s, and the way R&B from the late 80s to the 90s has used voice. I think there's a continuity there. I think there's much more relationship between Maria Carey and Jimmy Page than 
than some of my friends will allow me to claim. <laughs> and with that awesome <laughs> thought, let's have another quick listen to Marina and the Diamonds. You've been listening to A Slug of Pop on Resonance 104.4 FM, The Art of Listening. You can find more of this sort of stuff on the internet at freakytrigger.co.uk. I've been Tim Hopkins. Thanks very much to my guests today, Tom Ewing and Mark Sinker. And thanks to you for listening.